right, well, let me invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you, or open up an app to Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue with the story series and walking through the entire Bible this year together. Matthew chapter 27, go ahead and find your place there. And again, let me just take a couple minutes and say, boy, after being away for a few weeks, and last week we had the joy of being there in South Africa and a worship service with people from all over the world and so many different nationalities and cultures and languages, and it is so good to be back with you and to be able to look out and see some faces that I haven't seen in a while because I've been gone and just love being here singing like that with you, my church family, this morning. So thank you for your heart to sing and to worship King Jesus this morning. Uh, a couple things occurred to me in the earlier service while I was standing down here on the front row attempting to sing, which I'm not incredibly gifted at. Uh, but as I look out over this congregation and I thought back where God's taken me over the last few weeks, there's really, when you boil it all down to it, there's really only one thing ultimately, one reality that makes any sense while we're all gathered together here in this room on a Sunday morning. Again, from different backgrounds, different ages, we, we think different, we have different preferences, there's a lot of differences here. There's really only one reason that we would all be gathered together here in this room this morning, and here it is, that Jesus Christ, we just sang about it, died in my place and your place, and He rose up from the grave victorious. Jesus is alive today. Now listen, if that's not true, and we're just chasing some myth, I'll quote the Apostle Paul when he said, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're miserable people if that's not true. Because we are wasting our time. Now I imagine if I were to take a poll this morning, and I were just to kind of throw a question out there and ask for a show of hands, I'm not going to do that, but hypothetically, and I were to say this, how many of you believe and would, and would be willing to die for the historicity or the historical event called the resurrection? You say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't have to raise your hands, but I imagine most of you in this room would say, I believe in that event that took place 2,000 years ago. But here's something that's become very apparent to me, even in my own life, especially the last couple of weeks and the last few days, studying what we're going to look at together. I believe that majority of Christians, many of us, me included sometimes, will say, boy, I believe in the historicity of the resurrection. I believe in that event, but it makes absolutely no difference in your life on Monday. If the resurrection is true and the God-man went into the grave and rose up from the grave and Paul is true when he said in Romans, as believers we died with him and we rose with him to walk in the newness of life, then the resurrection matters to you when your marriage is falling apart. And the resurrection matters to you when you're trying to guide that wayward child and you don't know how to handle it and it is too much for you and you're thinking, where am I going to get the power and the ability to deal with this situation? The resurrection matters to you. If you're here this morning and I know you're out there 
and you're struggling with a sin that nobody in this room knows about and you think this sin has got its grips in me and I can never defeat the power of this sin, let me just tell you, on the authority of Scripture, the resurrection means everything to you. Because if Romans 6 is accurate, we have the glory of the resurrection at work in us who believe. And it's not just a historical event that took place 2,000 years ago. It is power for us who believe today to walk in the newness of life. Christianity and following Jesus is not a moralistic religion that says, I'm going to try harder, do better, and follow a set of rules, and I might become good enough. Christianity is a rebirth. It is being born again into a newness of life through King Jesus. So that's a lot to kind of begin to think about this morning. And what I want to do is I'm going to start in Matthew 27 and we're going to walk quickly through something all of us have probably read before, many of you. We're going to walk through some of the the crucifixion. We're going to get to Luke 24 and the resurrection. And then I want you to be able to leave here today having heard from Scripture, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ affect the way I live Monday morning? And does it matter? Because it does. So Matthew 27, you can go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Verse 1, let me give you the context of what we're about ready to read. We've been going through the story series now for many months. We started in creation. We followed the nation of Israel. Now the Messiah has been born. Jesus, we've been walking with Him several weeks through the Gospels. And we come to really what is the climax of all the Bible and the history of really the world, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Matthew 27. Now, you've got to know if you've been reading this on your own, when you come to Matthew 27, it's not really been a, it's not been a good few hours for the disciples. <laughs> Things have not really gone the way they humanly expected them to go. In the last 12, 15, 16 hours, here's what's happened to the disciples. Jesus has explained with now great crystal clarity that He's going away. And where He's going, they can't come. And they don't really even understand what he means. The last few hours they've seen one of their own, Judas, betray them and betray Jesus Christ publicly. And they can't get their minds around the fact that the guy that they trusted so much was a fake. And now they see Jesus himself taken into custody by the religious leaders of that day and carried off to a mock trial. And now their little band that was 12 is now down to 11 and they are scattering out of fear. They don't know what the future holds. It's ugly. It's a mess. They're horrified. And that's where the story picks up in Matthew 27. It's Friday morning. And it's been a rough Thursday night for the disciples. And Matthew continues on. He says, now when morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. The plot that they've been weaving now for weeks and months is coming to a conclusion and they're going to put Jesus on trial and ultimately bring him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. A little bit of history, Israel at this time, Judea is under Roman control as you probably know. A Jew has no authority whatsoever to try someone, much less put someone to death. So if their scheme of bringing Jesus and putting him to death is going to happen, it's got to give the, have the approval of Rome, and particularly Pilate, the governor. So they come up with this scheme and this plan, the religious leaders, that they have this mock trial where Jesus stands trial. They bring in these false witnesses who testify 
Pilate at this point, I'm going to skip quite a bit here. We're going to go on up to verse 15. But Pilate's, in a, Pilate's between a rock and a hard place. Pilate, the Roman governor, he, he doesn't even believe Jesus is guilty. He finds nothing. He says, I find no fault with this man. But he sees the zeal of the Jewish leaders. And he knows if he doesn't appease them somehow, some way, there's going to be a riot on his hands. And when you're in charge of a city and there's a riot in the city, it doesn't look good on you. So he's got to come up with something. Verse 15, now at the feast, it's Passover time, the Jewish feast of Passover. The governor, Pilate, was accustomed to release for the people one prisoner whom they wanted. So he's thinking, maybe I can release a prisoner and that'll make them happy. Verse 16, at that time they were holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Do you want me to let your Messiah go? Or do you want me to let this notorious prisoner named Barabbas go? You know the answer. The crowd cried out and said it was Christ that they wanted crucified. Let Barabbas go. Crucify him, the crowd cried. Crucify him, crucify him. Verse 18 says, Pilate knew that because of envy they had handed Jesus over. Pilate knew Jesus was an innocent man. But he's in a fix and he doesn't really know what to do. So under the pressure of the crowd and the the quandary he's in, he finally gives in. And he says, okay, if that's what you want, then he hands Jesus over to be crucified for fear of the crowd. And for fear of the religious leaders. And here's what happened. I'm going to give you a few particulars. Maybe you've read through these. Maybe you'll read through these in your reading this week. But I want to show you what particularly happened over the next few minutes as Jesus is prepared to stand trial. Before he ever gets to the cross... Some incredible things take place. Matthew 27, 27 says this. Then the soldiers of the governor, Roman guards, took Jesus to the praetorium. That's the Roman place of authority. And gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Get that mental picture. This is intended to be a word picture here. Here's Jesus. Now he's planted right in the middle of this Roman cohort. A Roman cohort is 600 soldiers, by the way. They've gathered around him as if to picture, here's the world, so to speak, gathered around the Son of God, and they're rejecting him. It's a picture. And there's Jesus right in the middle. Now what did they do? Now, if you've ever read this, you know that Matthew's account gets somewhat graphic. Luke's account gets even more graphic as a physician. But all that they do to Jesus over the next few minutes is not just... I'm not, I'm not going to read this just for shock effect. There are significant implications to everything they do to Jesus. It matters to your understanding of the gospel. Here's why. Verse 28. So in the middle of this mob, there are this group of 600 soldiers. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They shame him by stripping him naked. Verse 29, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. I'll never read that verse the same again after visiting Israel last year with Jennifer. We, we got to go actually up on the Mount of Olives where Jesus spent a lot of time. And there's these bushes all over the place. And some of these bushes have needles that are at least that long that grow out of these bushes. And I saw that thing for the first time. This verse comes to my mind thinking they went out. They pulled these things together. They wove this crown of thorns and they pressed it down on his head. Now why is that significant? Why does it matter? 
They put a reed in his right hand. They knelt before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the reed and they began to beat him on the head. Verse 30. What's going on here? There's a couple things that are happening before we ever even get to the cross that you need to understand are being fulfilled and carried out after reading the story and the whole of the Bible. Maybe it begins to make sense. Back in Genesis chapter 3, don't turn there, but when Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world for the very first time, the world itself and creation itself was under the curse of sin. Genesis 3, the Bible says this, 17 and 18, And then to Adam, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat from the plants of the field. Translation, sin does not only stop with mankind. The entire world experienced the curse of sin itself. And the thorn is a symbol of the curse of sin that the entire world's under. If you don't understand why the world is like it is and you turn on your news programs and you scratch your head and you think, why is the world in such a desperate state? Let me just encourage you. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3 and read. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen, broken world. That's why it is as it is. Creation itself bears the curse of sin represented by the thorn. Jesus takes this crown of thorns and has it pressed on his head as a picture of this. That Jesus Christ is literally bearing the curse of creation himself. He's bearing the curse. You know the curse of creation. It's not that work itself is the curse. Empty, vain work is the curse. Nothing works like it's supposed to. You, you plant seed and weed comes up. It's like everything is working against us. Things break and they have to be fixed. And they break again and they have to be fixed. We live in that world. The world is under the curse of sin. Romans 8 said God subjected the world to that futility knowing it was intended to be that way until there's a day, watch this, the same one who bore the curse of creation is going to be the one who's going to make it all right. And that's the only hope for the world, by the way. So here with this crown of thorns is a picture that Jesus is bearing the curse upon creation. Now secondly, something else is going on here. They stripped Him naked and they mock Him and they make fun of Him and they put this scepter in, their hand, in His hands and it's a, it's a shameful thing that's going on here. I want to back away from the text just to see it and let you get this mental picture. If, if you were there that day and you walk by the praetorium and you see this mob of soldiers, 600 of them, and, and you're able to peer in at what was going on, you would literally probably cover your eyes in disgust and shame because it was a shameful thing that was taking place. This man was being stripped, he was being mocked, he was beaten. And it was a shameful thing that was taking place. Why does that matter to you and me? And why is that in the Matthew account? Let me tell you why. Go back to Genesis 2. Don't, don't turn there, I'm going to read it to you. Genesis 2 says this, And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, Prior to sin, prior to sin entering the world, Genesis 2.25 says this. Adam and Eve, the wife, were both naked and they were, anybody know? Unashamed. Now watch, hang with me here. There was no shame. They bore no shame. 
The relationship between husband and wife never knew any shame. The relationship between God and man never knew any shame. Until sin entered the world and the consequence of that sin was shame. How do you know that? Genesis 3 verse 7 says this. After they sinned, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Something changed. Innocence goes to shame. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves lawn coverings, which is ridiculous and silly. Why were they doing that? To cover their shame. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because they were shamed. You and I have never known a world without shame. You in your own life have never known an experience without the shame of sin and the weight of sin and the realization that sin causes separation. Sin is a shameful thing. And listen, you live in a world today where men and women around you are doing everything they can to deny or to cover up their shame. Maybe you are here today and you put your head on your pillow at night and there's this heaviness in your heart. You're thinking about sins in your past. You're thinking about things you struggle with and you are so ashamed You know why Jesus Christ stood in the midst of those 600 soldiers and was put to open shame? Because He was bearing your shame and mine. All of it. See, the gospel is not just Jesus died for our sin. Yes, He took our shame. You as a follower of Christ have the message that the world is dying for today. Every person knows there's something not right. There's a brokenness. There's this shame in their lives. They don't know what to do about it. They try to medicate it. They try to, uh, they try to treat it with psychology, with whatever. Jesus Christ died to take away your shame. And here in the gospel, we see him bearing the shame of the world. That's why Romans 8 can say there is... <clears throat> There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The shame is gone. That's why Romans 10.11 says this. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in Christ, in Him, he will not be put to shame. Oh, isn't that good? Some of you right now, you're wrestling with things in your life and you're a believer and you know Christ, but you've never come to terms to realize, wait a minute, I can take this shame by faith and realize Christ died for my sin. He died for my guilt. He took my penalty. He took my shame and nailed it to a cross. That's a beautiful picture here. The story goes on and we get to verse 45 and it says, I'm skipping on ahead for sake of time. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until about the ninth hour. Let me translate that for you. About nine o'clock in the morning, Jesus is nailed to the cross. About noon, midday, the brightest point when the sun is in the highest point of the sky would be the ninth hour and darkness fell over the entire land. It's dark. And from that darkness, we read, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, verse 45, Eli, Eli, lamak sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Darkness throughout the Bible is a picture of judgment. When Egypt was being judged as one of the ten plagues, one of the plagues was the plague of judgment, or of darkness. 
2 Peter 2, 4 says the pits of darkness are reserved for judgment. 2 Peter refers to outer darkness as the place of judgment. So what you see here is the whole earth or this place here, it becomes dark at the highest point of the sun in the middle of the day as a picture of what? In that moment, Jesus Christ is bearing your judgment and my judgment. And he cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken means to abandon, to leave behind. For the first time in all eternity, there is a separation between God the Father and God the Son. Sin brings that separation. Jesus is bearing your separation. And watch this. In this moment, all of the wrath of God for the sin of the world is being poured out upon his Son. All of it. The wrath of God. That's why Jesus prayed in the garden. Lord, let this cup of wrath pass from me. And the answer was, there's no other way. You are the sin bearer. You are the wrath bearer. You are the judgment bearer. And at this moment, he bears the curse of creation. Bears the curse of our shame. Now the separation and abandonment. He experiences the full wrath of God against sin. Hallelujah. What a savior, by the way. Right? So the story goes on. This is about noon. Jesus hangs on the cross for another three hours. We get to about three o'clock in the afternoon. And the Bible says this, Matthew 27, 50. After six hours on the cross, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew 27, 50. The author of life himself, the God of all creation himself, now tastes death himself. Jesus is dead. In the book of Genesis, it says, The soul that sins will surely die. Sin brings forth death. Jesus now tastes death for every one. John 19.30 says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. One commentator, Arthur Pink, gives an interpretation of what it means when Jesus says to telestai, or it is finished. He says this, this was not the despairing cry of a helpless martyr. It was not the last grasp of a worn out life. No, rather it was a declaration on the part of the divine redeemer that all for which he came from heaven and earth to do was now done. And all that was needed to reveal the character of God has now been fully accomplished. The full price of our redemption was now paid. The great purpose of God in all of history was now accomplished and Jesus said ah it is finished and bowed his head the son of God died now that's not the end of the story right I mean, at this point, the disciples don't even fully understand all the implications of what has just happened, that Jesus has taken the sin of the world and the price for our sin has now been paid. Uh, What they know at this moment is their leader is now dead. Friday passes. They gather in an upper room and they gather wherever they can for fear. And the Romans are gathering all these disciples of Jesus. They're trying to squash out this, this sect called sect of the Nazarene. And they're running in fear. And then Saturday's the Sabbath. Not much happens on the Sabbath. And here now, three days later, Sunday morning comes. The the message of the cross at this point is only half of the gospel message. See, what I want you to see this morning is, yes, Jesus died for the sins of the world. Yes, He gave a sacrifice of His life so that we could have relationship with God. But But where is life? Jesus Christ and following Christ is a 
about life. And we see that in the resurrection of Christ. So I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to flip over to Luke 24. And let's see the rest of the story. Luke 24, 1. It's Sunday morning. (laughs) Friday was a rough day, but Sunday has come. And there's some ladies who are followers of Christ and they go out to the tomb. And that's where Luke picks up the story in Luke 24, 1. And it says this. But on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now you've heard that before, this huge stone that blocked the tomb was this massive stone that no human being could move on their own at all. Verse 3, or verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, angelic beings. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Don't you love that statement? Why are you here in a cemetery looking for a man who's alive? And they go on in verse 5 or verse 6 and says, He is not here, but He is risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man might be delivered into the hands of, or, would be, or must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day He would rise. And they remembered His words. Now Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them, who were told these things, went to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale and they did not believe them. Verse 12, I love this, but Peter. Last time Peter saw Jesus, Peter had denied Jesus. Peter had walked away in shame because he had denied that he knew Christ at all. And now Peter hears the story that now Jesus, is, Jesus could be alive. We can't find a body. And Peter, verse 12, says, rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. And as the story continues, here's what we know had happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's not dead anymore. I love that word marveling. It says that Peter continued to marvel at what had just taken place. Jesus is alive now. The resurrection of Christ is easily the most debated event in human history. There's such a volume of evidence supporting that Jesus literally rose from the grave that critics have attempted to disprove it with things called the swoon theory. The swoon theory was given by these Bible scholars who said, okay, here's what really happened since we don't believe Jesus could really rise from the dead. He really didn't die on the cross. Jesus got really, really sick. And they took him down from the cross and they threw him in that cool tomb. And when he was in the tomb, even though he'd lost a lot of blood, he was wrapped up in those, in those grave garments. He was revived and he threw off the grave garments and he took it, he threw that stone and he defeated all these Roman soldiers, a man who just hung on a cross for six hours. That's called the swoon theory. I'll choose to go with the Bible. How about you? Men and women throughout history have done everything to try to disprove the account. Men like C.S. Lewis and men like Josh McDowell who have done everything they can to disprove the reality of the resurrection and in doing so have been overwhelmed with its truthfulness and become followers of this risen Christ. Now here's where I'm going for the next few minutes and here's how we're going to close and here's why we're going this direction this morning. 
there are many of us, very often me included, who theologically and even historically will say, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Christ, but we do not live lives of resurrection power. And we live in defeat to ongoing sin. We live in constant discouragement of what's in front of us that we can't handle it. We live in fear. We live in discouragement. And the world looks on and sees nothing different. Listen, we are to be in the world a picture of what resurrection life looks like. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to give you four quick realities about the resurrection that I believe may be a game changer for some of us. Now, these are come from places like Luke and 1 Corinthians and Romans. So hang with me. I'm going to give you four of them really quick. Re- resurrection realities that will be game changers, I think, for all of us. Number one is this. Christ's resurrection proves that the cross was completely sufficient to save us from sin. It was like God's stamp of approval on Christ that what he did on the cross paid it all. And I'll raise him from the dead as a testimony that the satisfaction of God has been made in Christ. Where do you get that? Romans 4.25. Write this down. These are going to be quick. I pray you go back and read through some of these on your own. Romans 4.25. He who was delivered over because of our transgression was raised because of our justification. As a picture that Christ is, or God is fully satisfied in the crucifixion of Christ. Stamp of approval, if you will. Secondly. Christ's resurrection was the first of a new kind of human life. What? The Pastor Mike, that sounds kind of hokey. What are you talking about? Well, in the New Testament, you know, there were other people who came back to life, right? Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. Some other people that Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. Jesus now rises with a new resurrection body that is unlike anything the creation has ever known. Say, how do you know that and what does that mean? Well, let me show you. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. I'll just read this to you. It says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have now fallen asleep. The worst first fruits is the idea of something new. Uh, farmers in that day knew that there would be a harvest and the first fruits would be, would be typical of all the other fruits. He's saying Jesus is the first fruit of a new kind of human life that the world has never known. A resurrected body. What did it look like? How was it different? Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. I'll read this to you quickly. Describing the resurrection body says this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What was sown perishable is raised imperishable, meaning never die again. Jesus would never taste death again. The resurrected body will never taste death again. Lazarus died again, not Jesus. First fruits, new kind of human life. 
It is sown in dishonor, verse 43. It is raised in glory. No more shame of sin. No more guilt. A body that is prepared now for glory to live forever. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. No more frailty. No more given to temptation. A body that knows power. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual one. Jesus was resurrected with a spiritual body, raised in power, prepared for glory, which was imperishable. And he was the first fruits of many who would come after him. It's a new kind of human life. Now, what's this? Here's number three. Hang with me. Number three is this. Christ's resurrection guarantees our glorious future. That there will be a day when all who die in Christ and Christ returns at the end of the age will raise all of us to our glorious resurrection bodies just like Him and live forever and ever and ever with Him in our glorified body. That's future. Philippians 3 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Listen, is your old body fading away? Is your, are you sick and tired of wrestling with sin and temptation? Are you constantly under this fog of knowing there's more in Christ? Listen, one day this old body is going to be done away with, and you'll be raised with an imperishable body. Come, Lord Jesus, right? Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It is gone. It is conquered under the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, hang with me. This is where we're going. That's point number three. That's future. Future in Christ. What about Monday morning? Does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as a child of God change the way I approach my marriage and my family and my job and my mission and my witness and what God has called me to do? Reality number four is a game changer. Ready? Here it is. According to what Scripture teaches, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us Today, now, at this moment, the message of the gospel is so glorious to say Christianity and following Jesus again is not a moralistic, therapeutic religion that says I'm going to do more, try harder, and maybe I'll be good enough. It is a rebirth by the power of Christ, the same power that God raised from the dead. If you are here and you are a child of God, that same power is at work in you now. You have been reborn. Say, where do you get that from? Ephesians chapter 1, I'll just read some of these verses. Let these, let these verses just flow over you. Paul prays for the believers there in Ephesus. He says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated us in Him in the place of honor at God's right hand. Paul says, I'm not praying for the believers, God, that you would give them some new power. I'm praying that they will know the power they've already been given in Christ. God, open our eyes to see there is no sin too great. There is no challenge too great. There is nothing that cannot be overcome in, overcome in Christ. The power of Christ is in you. First Peter 
I'll read this. Peter never got over the resurrection. Peter says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter said I never got over it. There's a new birth. Power of Christ in you. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. That's a reality now. There's a mystery to the union we have with Christ that I can't even begin to explain. Romans teaches it. Paul teaches it here in chapter 5. Somehow, someway, by faith in Jesus. Watch this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, I died with Him. And when He rose from the dead, I rose with Him. I rose to walk in the nearness of life that is transformational no other system of teaching no other message on planet earth has the power and the message of a rebirth that is in a resurrected risen Christ hallelujah what a savior Romans 6 finally and I'll end there where it gets very practical Paul gives an incredible practical theology of this how it plays its way out in our lives Romans 6 verse 4 and 5 he says this And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with Him in His death, so also we will be raised to life as He was in Christ Your old man is gone and nailed to a cross. You have the power of Christ walking in you now, just as Christ was raised from the dead, to walk in the newness of resurrection life now. Paul didn't pray for the church at Ephesus that they would get something they didn't already have. Paul prayed, God, would you open their eyes to know the truth of Scripture and to know the promises of God, to know what you already have in Christ. Say, Pastor Mike, come on, man, I hear all that. I just got to be honest. When I wake up on Monday morning, the last thing I feel like is new. (laughs) I wake up and I feel defeated. And I wake up and I think, I don't know if I can go another day. I don't know if I can hold this marriage together. I try to open my Bible and read, and there's all these temptations and thoughts going through my mind. Listen to me, child of God. If you allow feelings to direct your life, you will live in discouragement, despair, and depression. Listen. But if you lean into, and you fight the fight of faith based on truth, then you can wake up and you can open your eyes on Monday morning and say, because Jesus died and because Jesus rose from the dead, today, this moment, I can walk in the newness of life and there is power to face temptation. There is the power of the resurrection to wrestle with this sin. There's power to fight for my marriage. There's power to fight for my children. And listen, the book of Acts is a testimony that there is power to take this message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is resurrection power and that's what he's called us to God deliver us from weak 
frail Christianity that cannot even get our minds out of the gutter for the world to see resurrection life and point to our great risen Savior, King Jesus. God, let us know what is true about us in Christ now. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would you bow your heads with me this morning right there where you're seated? And I want you to take just a moment. Our team's going to come and they're going to play over us and we're going to stand and sing this truth in just a second. Romans 8.11 says this, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Do you believe that this morning? Say, Mike, sometimes I don't feel like it. Some of you here this morning and as a believer, as a child of God, maybe for the first time in a long time, you need to be reminded of what's true. You've been redeemed. You've been set apart. And the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ up from the dead is active and alive in you right now. And Paul said in Romans, Therefore, sin is no longer our master. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're alive. Maybe for the first time in a long time, some of you need to claim and rest and lean into the great resurrection truth. Some of you are here this morning, and as you, just for a moment, as you keep your head bowed, I, I know in this room, I don't know everybody's place. I don't know what's going on in your heart. God does. Some of you are here, the idea of resurrection power is completely foreign to you because you do not have the resurrection power residing within you. You just have external religion. Jesus Christ died. He rose from the dead. And this morning you can turn from your own way. You can turn from leaning on your own strength. Turn from your sin and by faith receive Him as Savior, Lord. Died on a cross, rose from the dead. Jesus, I need you. Ask Him right there in your seat. If you don't know Christ, call out to Him. Father, I need this salvation. I need this redemption. I give you my life. And by faith, I receive the salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ. I give my life to you. If that's the desire of your heart, we would love to speak with you after the service. Don't leave without talking to someone. For the rest of you, allow the Spirit of God just to press these truths down in your life. That when we leave here, we leave in resurrection power. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the living, active Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces deep in our heart. God, forgive us for leaving, living weak, shallow, depending on ourselves, lives that the world sees no difference whatsoever when the King of glory lives within us, the Spirit of God. God, thank you that we've been united with Christ in death, united with Christ in resurrection. The Spirit of God lives in us. We praise you and we love you. In King Jesus' name we pray together.